scripture as I start sharing. I'm going to share parts of my testimony tonight, not all of it, because it would, we'd be here for about six hours to share the whole thing. Does anybody ever get to see Daystar TV Network? Daystar. Anyway, there's a documentary that plays and runs on there all over the world that tells my life story, that goes through all that, and it, we run it all over the world periodically and uh, minister to people through that and some other TV and, and radio outreach also. So you may see the whole thing on there. But in Mark chapter 5, there's a story here that I call the Madman of Gadara. We're not going to read the whole story for the sake of time. But you can, it was a man that lived in the graveyards. He ran around with no clothes on, and he cut himself with stones. He was so supernaturally empowered by demons that they could take these chains and chain this man and the, he could break these chains loose. And the Bible says no man could tame him. In other words, no man could help him. No man. It's supernatural. It is supernatural. We got Michael back there, so keep an eye on him. Amen. But it is supernatural. But no man could help him. No man could turn the things around. But God, the Lord Jesus Christ, came walking down the road where this man was at one day, realized he was demon-possessed, cast the devils out of him, got him set free in his right mind, and this man had never experienced his joy and happiness in all of his life, and he wanted to go and be with Jesus, but Jesus wouldn't allow him to. Let's look at Mark 5, verse number 18. It says, And when he was come to the ship, speaking of Jesus and his disciples, said he that had been possessed with the devil, now he's totally set free, prayed him or asked Jesus that he might be with him or stay with him. Verse 19 said, Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, or would not allow him to, but said unto him, Go home to thy friends and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee and has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to publish into Capitalists how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. What happened? He called him into the ministry. Isn't that right? Jesus called this man in the ministry. Well, the same thing almost happened to me. On my third escape from prison, driving down the road in Galveston, Texas, I had a supernatural encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Has anybody ever heard of the Apostle Paul? The Apostle Paul at one time was a murderer, a murderer of Christians. And he was on his way to go murder people on the road to Damascus. And suddenly Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and they sung that song over him. What song? You know the song. They sung it over the Apostle Paul. Am I going to blow up anything if I step down here? But they, they, they sung that song over the Apostle Paul. Remember what that song was? This is the song. Another one bit the dust. That's the song they sung over him because he fell down to the ground when Jesus showed up. It don't matter how big you are and how bad you are when you meet Jesus or even how good you are and how royal you are when you meet Jesus, you're going to fall to your knees because you're going to recognize him as God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is going to change your life. That's exactly what happened to me on my third escape from prison, driving down the road in Galveston, Texas, uh, the first week of May of 1982. I had a supernatural encounter with Jesus. At that time in my life, when I had this encounter with him, I would have laughed at you. If you'd have tried to tell me it was a Bible, was a book that God had wrote. I thought it was a fairy tale book that somebody wrote trying to make me be good. And I was in full-blown rebellion, and you're not going to make me obey that book. But after I met Jesus in Galveston, Texas in 1982, they sung that same song over me. Another one bit the dust. But let me tell you how I got to that point. Believe it or not, I started off in what we would call a Christian home. Aunt Rosie used to take me to Gentian Baptist Boulevard. It was Gentian Baptist Boulevard. It was actually Gentian Boulevard Baptist Church. So I went to Gentian Baptist Church. I can see myself right now as a little toddler. Aunt Rosie would come by and pick me up. That's before my daddy and mama started going to church. Aunt Rosie was my daddy's uh, older sister. 
And she would come by and get me. There was four of us youngins, five actually, uh, but uh, four, five of us youngins, and Aunt Rosie, I don't know, we call it in the country, took a hankering to me. Is that good country talk for city folks? But she took a hankering to me, and, and you know, somehow or another, as a little child, and she said the rest of the kids got more attention, and she wanted to come by, and, and, and she'd take me with her to different places. And I remember, I can see myself right now, walking down the sidewalk outside of Gentian Baptist Church on Gentian Boulevard in Columbus, Georgia. I can see even at that time that God was trying to direct my steps as a little boy. God was trying to deal with me as a little boy. God was trying to make himself real to me as a little boy. And many of us can have experiences if we look back and see where, how God dealt with us. Now, at the time, I didn't understand it all. But Aunt Rosie would take me to Gentian Baptist, and I found out about Jesus. I knew, you know, about the salvation prayer, because if you're going to the Baptist church, you're going to confess and know about the Roman road to salvation. You're going to know that Roman road. You say, where is that Roman road? Well, we're in New Mexico, so you're not in Rome, so you've got to find the New Mexico road. But anyway, but, but it was the Roman road to salvation. You've you got to first find out you're a sinner. Then you've got to know that you need the Lord. Then you've got to know that you confess Jesus as your Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you'll be born again. And so I started off kind of the right way. But as I grew up, I started hanging around. The Bible says evil communications corrupt good manners. And so I started hanging around folks that, that wasn't trained like I was. In fact, one of my best friends was Randy Cotton. And his mama had a 66 Chevelle. And them things were popular back in those days. Now, it wasn't a race car to her, but it was to us. You know what I mean? It had this, uh, I think that thing had a 327 Chevrolet engine because it was a Chevrolet Impala, and it was a standard shift. And so Randy, he, had, he was 16, and so he could get that car. And so he would go by and, and pick me up uh, and then go by and pick up his, uh, his cousin, Billy, Billy Cotton was real big. He was older than us. And we'd take Billy down to the whiskey store and the beer store to buy us beer and whiskey and then go drop him off, you know, because he'd have went to jail if I'd have caught him back in them days especially. So anyway, I remember the first time I was introduced to alcohol. I mean, I do nothing about it, hadn't been around it, and I wondered what in the world is going on? What in the world is happening? What got me in this situation and mess that I'm in? And so, we're driving down the road. Billy Cotton is sitting in the front on the passenger side. Randy Cotton is driving this 66 Chevelle, and I'm sitting in the back. And they started drinking this stuff, and they, it, it, the name on the bottle, I could see that, was called Southern Comfort Whiskey. The biggest lie they ever told about the comfort part. There wasn't no comfort in it, but they was drinking it up there, and they was drinking it, you know, and it smelled real sweet. And I had never drank any before and, and, or nothing because, I mean, Daddy would have killed us if he'd even known I was in the car with it. I mean, I wouldn't be here today. I mean, just sing that song over me. Another one bit the dust. It'd be over. In fact, if Mama had left Daddy alone, I'd have never spent 10 years of my life behind prison bars. You know why? Because Daddy would probably killed me. Because he believed in getting the beating the devil out of you. They used to believe that, you know what I mean? Just beat you till the devil left you. I mean, there was something about it. He would leave you after a while. You know, Daddy, you know, I'd tell Daddy, I can't, I can't, I can't. But he'd take me out behind the woodshed. And after we left that woodshed, I could. I could. I'm telling you, you apply the, the Board of Education to the seat of learning. I mean, it makes you smart in a hurry. I mean, you get intelligent. I mean, back in those days, young folks, I don't know if you know, we used to get paddled at school. They used to paddle us. Our teacher used to paddle us. Our teacher did. Now, if you tried that today, they'd sing that song, wouldn't they? Over here. Another one bit the dust. But that, they used to do that. You didn't smart mouth the teacher. You didn't say anything. You didn't disrespect the principal. You didn't say anybody. I mean, I got some licks, and if Coach Landing... Coach Landing, his name is L-A-N-D-I-N-G, last name. He had him a big paddle with holes drilled in a board. And he believed in applying that board to the seat of learning. And he would call us in this room, and he would lift us up off that floor. I mean, I seen boys crying because them licks hurt so bad. 
So anyway, I sure didn't want Daddy to know where I was at, the situation I was in. But here, I'm riding down the road in the car in this 66 Chevelle, remember? And Randy and Cotton and Billy Cotton, their cousins, they're passing this stuff around, and Randy started hollering back there at me. Come on, drink some of this. You can forget your problems. He said, you're sad all the time. The reason I was sad because I was backslid. I got away from God. I mean, I grew up knowing about God, but I got away from him. I said, no, I ain't messing with that. So they started laughing at me, making fun of me. Oh, you're just scared, you know. You're just scared. You ought to drink some. So I said, well, let me see it, you know. And I, I took the thing, you know, read it. It said Southern Comfort Whiskey, 100 proof. You know what I mean? Comfort part's a lie part. The 100 proof didn't mean nothing. I didn't know how you'd done all that. I, you know, it was a bunch of moonshiners in my family, but I'd kind of been protected from them, you know. But uh, there was moonshiners, you know, done the moonshine and all that stuff. I got a cousin that still does it today. In fact, I, my sister's funeral, I preached her funeral, and he was there. He said he had a 500-pound steel running right then. So we'll get in the spirit real quick if we go to my cousin's. But, <laughs> but it's a fur piece from here. It's over in Georgia. So I smelled of this Southern Comfort whiskey. Now, I'm talking, this is a long way from Jesus, but I'm telling you how I got to him. I smelled of it, and it smelled real sweet. Who in here has ever smelled the smell of Southern Comfort whiskey? We got him, get his picture. Got one back in the sound booth. We got him. He's, I mean, he may have a bottle back there. We need to check him out right now. <laughs> anyway, he was raising his hand up high, Southern Comfort. But you smell of it, you know what? And it smells real sweet. I mean, it kind of smells like candy in a way. And so I didn't know how they was drinking it. I thought you drink it like you'd drink what we call in the South a Coca-Cola. You know, Coca-Cola was invented over there. So when you went to the store to get, what do y'all call it here, pop or soda? Okay, soda. Well, over there, everything is a Coca-Cola. Let's go to the store and get a Coca-Cola. That doesn't mean you're going to get a Coca-Cola. You might get a knee-high orange. You know what I mean? But, but you just you say, let's go get a soda. Well, over there, they say, let's go get a Coca-Cola. Because Coca-Cola was invented right in Columbus, Georgia. Then they set their plants up in Atlanta, Georgia. And, oh, it was a mess. But anyway, they had Coca-Colas up there, and they was drinking it. They called it chasing it. You know, they drank a sip out of that Southern Comfort, and then they drank a cola. Coca-Cola behind it, I didn't know all that. It just smelled sweet. I know you're supposed to drink it like you drink a soda. You understand what a soda is. So I just turned this thing up because it said Southern Comfort. And I gulped about half of it down. You know what I mean? Because it was a pint bottle. Might have been a half pint, but it was a small bottle, you know, wasn't a giant thing. And I turned it up and drank about half of it. Well, it took a while for it to go from here down to here. But when it got around about here, I knew I had consumed too much already. I mean, I was a gagging and a coughing and a spitting and a carrying on. Oh, my God. And they were laughing at me, and it hit the bottom. Woof. And it was a hundred full, hundred proof. It was the high test stuff. And it was said Southern Comfort. They lied. There wasn't no comfort to it. If I'd have had any bugs, and if I did have any, it killed every one of them going down. I guarantee you. They didn't have to dewarm me when they got through with it. So I'm, I, I'm sitting in the back of this car, you know. And we're driving along, and all of a sudden, you know, after about 10 minutes or so, the trees started going around. Whee! And the telephone pole started leaning over, you know. And I was telling Randy, I said, the telephone pole is going to fall. The trees are turning. They started laughing at me. They said, no, you're getting drunk. I had never been drunk. I'd never been around that. I didn't know what drunk meant. But all of a sudden, everything started spinning. My world started spinning. I felt like the car was spinning. They told me it wasn't. I tried to get them to stop, and they wasn't. Wouldn't stop. They said, we can't stop. We're on a major highway out here. I said, this whole thing's spinning. The whole world's spinning. And then all of a sudden, I think they call it regurgitating in the city. But we flat call it puking in the country. I puked till I like to have died. All that white Chevelle turned pukey yellow <laughs> down the passenger side. I mean, because everything I had in there started coming up. And I got so sick, I was afraid that I would not die. In fact, I started trying to get right with God in the back seat. I said, God, if you'll bring me out of this, I'll never do it again.
till the next day. But anyway, <laughs> I, I'll never do it again. You know how all of us have been there. I'll never do it again. So my head's a spinning. And so that introduced me to alcohol. And then that kind of, we kind of eased on into that, you know, lying to my parents and, you know, cheating and stuff. And then the next thing, you know, I was introduced to, to what they call marijuana or a pot back in those days. I don't know what all the names they got for it today. And then that led to other things. And the next thing, you know, I'm a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. And that's all I live my life for is to get drunk and high. Well, as I was doing this, then... Uh, what happened is one day I got to all hopped up on these high-powered drugs and my friend Randy again had this high-powered 67, no, it's a 77 Nova and this thing had this high-powered 396 engine with Edelbrock carburetors on it, Edelbrock manifold with two four-barrel carburetors four in the floor, running open headers, and this thing was almost, it was a semi-race car. And I said, Randy, I want to borrow your car to go down through there. I had one, but I wanted to borrow his to go down the street. And so I was uh, kind of, my head was a spinning again. And so when I left out, you know, I took off like a race car, like I was going to quarter mile. And the next thing you know, the police authorities, uh, I passed them uh, uh, going too fast. They call them speed limit signs. And I'm running open headers, so it sounds like a tank, you know, going down the highway too. And so they whirled around in the road and fell in behind me, so I took off. And I started running because I had marijuana on me. Back in those days, if you had marijuana, I didn't have but just two or three what they call joints in that day, size of a cigarette, two or three, but they'd put you in jail for those things. So I was trying to get rid of any pills I had and alcohol, and I'm running, and I, this car had run up to about 140, and that's about it because of the way the rear end and all that was fixed. And so I'm going down through there, flying and dipping in and out, and they had built this new interstate, but they had never completed it to, there in Columbus, Georgia. It just come to an end suddenly. Well, I knew it come to an end, and so there was an exit ramp that you had to take because there's signs saying, stop, you know, dead end. The road don't go any further. But when I got to the exit ramp, I forgot to tell you this. I had this girl in the car that I had picked up too, and she's sitting in the passenger side, and she's screaming, let me out, let me out, because I done scared her, you know, half to death. And, and so when we got to the exit ramp, it was dark and it was sprinkling rain. And so I couldn't see good out of the windshield. The wipers are working, but I still couldn't see good. And so I ran right past that ramp. When you run past the ramp, you have reached the point of no return. I mean, you are going somewhere you don't want to go. And then suddenly, woof, I went off the end of this bank. And we supernaturally, I guess, did not turn over and went down to the bottom, slid down in this grass, and it stopped for just a split second. That girl bailed out and rolled out on the grass, slammed the door. I took off again. So here we got the county police and we got the city police, and they chased me. To make a long story longer or shorter, I can do it both ways. They finally caught me because I was going around this hairpin curve. In fact, it was a curve to your right. It was in a subdivision. I should have never been there out of my mind. It was a sharp right-handed curve. I mean, real sharp. When I went in that curve, where this car was kind of lifted up in the back, when I went in that curve, the back end broke loose. And when it did, it just turned all the way around. And I'm trying to bring it all the way around and go forward again. But when I turned it all the way around, here's the police. I, he's facing me and I'm facing him. I'm going backwards and he's coming forwards. And suddenly, whoof, it hit the side of the road and hit up beside this fence. And they stopped, jumped out and got the pistols. And they cocked them and pointed them at me and said, get out of the car. When they tell you to get out of the car and they got a pistol pointed at you, get out of the car. I just save you the trouble. I got out of the car. And so they arrested me. To make a long story short, I, they did find some marijuana on me. In those days, just for a little bit, you went to prison. And so they gave me a year to serve, which was after attorneys, you know, got some time cut off. A year to serve in what they call the Georgia Chain Gang Road Camp. Anybody ever heard of the Georgia Chain Gangs? Everybody ever heard of them balls that you drag with your feet? I was there. I can tell you what it was like. I lived there. I was on the road crew. I was on the chain gang. 
in Georgia, the chain gang. I was on that thing. And so I'm there, and while I'm in there, I wasn't a crook. I was just a young punk kid, you know, that thought I knew it all. But there was guys in there with life sentences for murder and robbery. And there was one guy that slept close to me. He was in there for armed robbery. And he would tell these stories about how he got this and how he got that and how he had this kind of car, wine, women, and song. Oh, just a life of Riley, so to speak. Just got it made because of all these robberies he had done. And I began to listen to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's trying to convince me to become an armed robber. You know, it dawned on me later. You know, I believe I got an intelligent thinking out of it. I thought, well, if this was supposed to be so glorious... Why in the world is he sitting in prison with a life sentence for it? It wasn't as glorious as he made it out to be. But he planted those seeds into my mind. And I got out. I got an early release for good behavior, you know, and all that. And parents and people knowing people, you know how that goes. And they let me out earlier than I was supposed to get out. I think I'd done about six months on the chain game, and then they got me out. But it was hard labor, I'll guarantee you that. And... Uh, so when I got out, I, I, I told him, and I promised the judge, if I, I lived the do-right gospel in that day. I don't know if you know what the do-right gospel is, but I would tell the judge, Judge, you let me go this time, and I'll do right. And I did till I got out of his sight. That's called the do-right gospel. You just do right because you got caught for the moment, but as soon as you get out of sight of everybody, you're going to get messed up, goofed up, and Bored you ever been before. So here I am. And when I got out, everything seemed to be going fine. And it wasn't long before I got right back down that same road and through selling drugs and, and things because I'd progressed a lot further in that field. I was able to buy me a 1972 Corvette, you know, and I had pistols, a home, brick home. It seemed like I had it all together through these drugs, but then I began to get so hooked on the drugs that I was buying and selling, that I was, sell I was taking more of them and partying more of them than I was selling, and I got in debt to the dope man. If you don't know what the dope man is, bless you. Help you. Lord be with thee. And so I realized that the dope man's going to kill me or I'm going to kill him. So I took my, my friend with me, my uppy, my homie. I took him with me, Goat. His nickname was Goat. You know what billy goats are? Billy goats are some hard-headed creatures. And the reason that we called him goat because he was hard-headed. And so Goat and I went to the dope man's house, and he's the one that had the money, and he had the dope. And so we went in and done things we weren't supposed to and took the money, took the, took the uh, drugs, and done that. We got noted for that in the city. And so it finally come down that we couldn't find anybody. Everybody's in hiding. Because we were just going from one to the other, one to the other. You know, after we'd party up the money and everything, then we'd go to the next dope man. Because they can't call the police because they'd get, put them in jail too. You know what I mean? Because they, they know they're dopies already and druggies. So it all got down to where we didn't have any more money. And then next thing you know, I lost the house. I lost the Corvette. I lost everything I had. And I wound up sleeping in the ditches. That's where I was at. I was like a vagabond on the streets. That's where I got to. Following the devil always seems glorious to begin with. But in the end, I'll guarantee you it will take you down and take you out. It will. I've proven it time after time. So in this broken state that I'm in, Goat and I got together again. And we knew where this place was going to be that had a lot of money. And this, it was going to be a lot of cash money just for a short period of time. And then we was going to go and get this money with a car that we had ob obtained the wrong way. You know what I mean? We stole it. Forgive me. We stole this car. And we took this car, and then we went and we got a motorcycle. Stole it, too. And so we took this motorcycle... To, by this place, and we parked it away in the woods about six to seven miles 
on where we was going to commit this armed robbery. And a large sum of money was going to be in these cages just for a certain amount of time. And we knew there's only going to be so much security. And we was going in there following the devil's plan. And we was going to get this money and then leave on this getaway car sail down into these swampy wooded area where we had this motorcycle that could go through the woods more of a trail bike than you road bike but a trail bike and we was going to take this trail bike and ride through the woods about 10 or 15 miles hit this major highway and get on this highway and drive for about another 100 miles and then we were going to get a ticket at this airport and we're going to fly down to the islands and we're going to live happily ever after the devil's plans never work like you want them to. We get the motorcycle, we stash it over in the woods. I'd only been on this road where we put the motorcycle twice in my life. Once years ago, and this happened in the state of Alabama, even though I lived in Georgia, the place we was going to rob, and we was robbing other places, but this was the big deal. I mean, this is where we was going to be set for the rest of our life, you know, supposedly. So we put the motorcycle about six miles away. We then scouted out what we was going to do. So I'd been on that road twice in my life. We took this getaway car, drove up there. We didn't care if they got a description or anything because we're going to dump it. They can't tie it to us. No way. And we're trying to keep our prints out and all this other stuff out of the car, you know. And so we go in to this place to rob it. Once we get in and they realize that we got in because there's a place that we knew how to get in that they didn't know we knew, and we got in, First of all, there was more security there than what we had thought. And then it was Goat's job to take care of security and take the phones out so that they could not call the authorities because he was out away from the city some, a lot of gambling and stuff. But anyway, when we was in this place and started committing the robbery, I command, we had this big duffel bag so they could put this money in because we didn't want them nothing. I, I walked up to the lady at the cage, and, and I put this gun up, and I said, said, this is a robbery. I said, put all the money in this bag. And she kind of snickered, you know, laughed. And the next thing I know, when I come to my senses, because I was high on drugs and alcohol, I had a, a thirty-eight pistol with cock with wad-cutter bullets that flip when they come out of the barrel that bust human skulls all to pieces. I had that right up to her head, and I was fixing to pull the trigger, and I snapped. And I thought, I know, but I'm fixing to kill this lady. I was going to kill her. How far have you gone? How could you get to this place? I knew better. Ain't Rosie taught me better. Mama taught me better. Granny taught me better. Daddy taught me better. And here I am so selfish and so mean, not caring about human life or anybody else. Just so I get my needs met, I'm willing to kill somebody else. We've got a society today and a world today that's like that. And I'm not belittling anybody, I'm just telling you the truth. Well, that lady said later in the court, when I cocked that gun, it scared her. And she knew that I would kill her. And she started putting the money in there. Well, goat has is, is got security. They're all down on the floor. You know, they, they're laying on the floor. And I, and, and I heard something groaning and grunting behind me. Kind of. And I whirled to look, you know, and guess who it was? It was goat. He was supposed to take out all the phones. But you know them metal pay phones? Well, you might not know them. But they used to be metal pay phones that hung on the wall. They had a metal wire. That's for these days of these phones you can hide in your hands, I'm telling you. Hung on the wall. He was trying to jerk one of those things down off the wall, and that's the only one that had left operational. And, he, you know, he, I said, Goat, I said, can't you get that thing off? He said, you come do it. So I then got the money, you know, and, and told the lady to lay down on the floor. We didn't shoot nobody. Thank God, you know, all this is wrong. The only reason I share my past is to help somebody else in their present or future. She was laying down. You know, on the floor. And I ran over there where Goat was. And uh, we tried to pull that phone loose, but we couldn't. There was a metal wire going up to it, you know, from the thing you talk on. We looked like Laurel and Hardy. If you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about. Laurel and Hardy, you know, doing this robbery. We left it dangling operational, you know. And when we ran out the door, got in this getaway car, tore off down the road. I'm driving. 
and goats. He's throwing up these $100 bills. In that day, they had $500 bills. In that day, they had $1,000 bills. I don't know if you remember those days or not. But they had those kind of money. And he was throwing it up. And he said, we got it made. Oh, we got it made. The devil always makes you think you got it made. We're driving, and this is a standard shift car. We don't care. It's not a real fast car because we don't need a fast car. We're going to get away. We're not going to get caught. You're not going to get caught. If you was going to get caught, you wouldn't do it. So I turned off the main state highway onto this county road. And we got to go down this road about... Uh, four or five miles to where the motorcycle's at. So when I turned off the state highway, I started flying down this county road because I knew that they that phone was operational. I knew that they was going to be able to call somebody. So I'm flying down this road. As I'm going down that road, suddenly I come up on a curve, and it was a left-handed curve, and it was real sharp and into the left turn. And I realized the speed that we're going, we're not going to make that curve. This car is going to flip and roll from end to end, and we're going to scatter parts everywhere out here in this country. And Goat uh, was over there looking. He's already scared to death. Uh, and I wonder, what in the world am I going to do? He said, what you going to do? I said, just hang on. And so I pushed the clutch in because the standard shift, slammed the thing in second, popped out on the clutch, hit the brakes, uh, and wondered the transmission and the rear end didn't come out of it, but it didn't. And we slid broadside into this left-handed curve. And when we did, we lost traction and went up against this bank about 10 foot high, this dirt bank, and we hit it. Bow! And we was going so fast, it just bounced us back. And, and we caught the road. And the road caught us and bow! We went back over there. And then it threw us back off that bank, back on the highway. And I stomped the gas pedal to the floor. And guess what happened? Absolutely nothing. The car wouldn't work. The gas pedal quit working. The gas pedal, the thing that went from the gas pedal in the car to the carburetors in the days of carburetors, for those of you that don't know what they are. They have fuel injection now. But anyway, carburetors, the linkage had come loose and all this beating and knocking. Well, I'm O'Shea Tree Mechanic. So I, the car comes rolling to a stop because all that's doing is idling. You can't give it no gas. And I jump out, you know, and goats hollering, hurry, hurry, hurry. So I jump out, open the hood, and begin to look. And it sounded like coming behind me in the direction the car was headed that there was a low-flying helicopter. So I turned to look, and guess who it was? It was the Alabama State Patrol. And this lights were a flashing, his siren was a screaming, and he's headed, we know, to the scene of the crime by the phone that we left dangling operational. He's coming off the county road, and he's headed to the scene of the armed robbery. Well, he don't realize that's us until he gets right there on us because they had a description of the car. Because why? We didn't care. It's not our car. They can't trace it to us. We're going to ditch it, get rid of it. They're not going to catch us, remember? The devil's plans never work. When that state trooper got within just uh, 50 yards of where we was at, he realized uh, that that's the folks I'm looking for. But he's going so fast he can't stop. So he hits the brakes and smoke starts boiling out from under the car. And he's got this uh, microphone inside that he can talk on a speaker outside. And so when he's sliding by us with smoke boiling out from under the car, he's hollering, halt, you're under arrest as they go by. Well, as he's doing all this stuff, I get the breather off the carburetor. Now, you have to be from back yonder to know about this stuff. The breather off the carburetor, slang it in the ditch, snap the carburetor linkage back on, little butterfly clip. Men, you may remember those days. Little butterfly clip, I pop that thing back on, slam the hood, jumped in the car, and the police officer is still trying to get that thing stopped and headed back to where we're going. You know he's on the radio right now, you know, to call people. And so I jumped in the car, and I started burning rubber, you know, taking off first gear, hit second gear, and was coming out of second gear to third gear, and guess what happened? The carburetor linkage come off again, but this time it stuck, where to go 40 miles an hour, no faster, no slower. By this time, the state trooper got turned around. He's running about 120 to 140 trying to catch us. Well, you don't even have to be a mathematician, excuse me, teacher, to figure this thing out. You know what I mean? If you're going 40 and he's going 140, it's not going to take long for him to catch you and you're going to be in a mess in just a moment. So a goat says, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I said, what do you want to do? He said, let's shoot it out with him. 
let's shoot it out. He said, there's only one of him that was in that car. And he said, there's two of us. Uh, you know, the devil always gives you a picture glowing out in a blaze of glory. We was hellfire and brimstone. That's where we was headed. And I had a tad bit more sense than Goat did. Now, let me clarify something. When you say that you got a tad bit more sense than Goat did, that ain't bragging a bit. I want you to know that. <laughs> I want you to know. And Goat was saying, let's shoot up with him. I said, they go, there's going to be so many police here in just a minute. We can't do this. He said, what you going to do? And I could see a big ravine or a gully on a curve to our left. And we was almost in that curve. I said, when we go around this curve up here, the state trooper's going to go out of sight. And I said, when he goes out of sight and disappears, because he's still a good distance behind us, I said, I'm going to run this car off this big cliff down here to our left, this ravine, and it's a bunch of what they call kudju vines. Anybody know what them are? You've got to be from the country to know what them are. There's a lot of vines that just grow wild. I mean, thick and woolly booger-looking things. You know what I mean? And they're out there. I said, I'm going to run this thing down in that patch. And I said, when we get down there, you get the money, get the guns. Uh, hang on to them. When we hit the bottom, if it don't kill us, uh, I said, jump out and let's run. And I said, it's every man for himself, but stay with me. He goat looked at me, and I think it's probably the first intelligent thought he may have had in his lifetime. I don't know. I, I just think it might have been. He said, that'll kill us. Going off the cliff, you know. Why did he think about all this before he got involved in the wrong robbery? Why do you want to get sane thinking now? But that's the way the devil does. And so here I am in this situation. And so we get far enough in this curve, and it, the officers, police officers' cars disappeared. I can't see him. And so I run this car, because we're going about 40 miles off this cliff. Whew. I mean, it's flipping and flopping, and about 100 feet down, it finally comes to a stop. Boom! hit this big bank with the front end, bursted the radiator, smoke's going everywhere. It looks like it's going to catch on fire. And we were all banged up, but, you know, we knew we had to get out of there. Just for the days you wore seatbelts, you know. And so I said, can you get your door open? He said, yes. I said, get out. Let's go. And by the time we're getting out, all of a sudden, boom, boom, halt, you're under arrest. The state trooper had seen us go over the bank. He stopped and was firing shots into the air. And telling us to stop. He wasn't necessarily shooting at us. But the buckshot were sprinkling down there where we were at. Uh, well, let me tell you something. When the buckshots get to flying, I can too. <laughs> and I come out of that car and the buckshots were coming down through there. And we started running. And I run and I had longer legs than goat. And so I had out running. And we was running through thick briars and woods. I mean, you couldn't imagine if you lived here all your life. But over there. I mean, that was thick. I mean, thick. I mean, vines and stickers and thorns and bushes. and I mean, where no man had ever been before almost, you know. And we're going. And finally, after a mile, I'm out of shape, you know, and I'm running hard and scared, drilling, pumping. I slid up on my belly under this giant Alabama pine tree. And I'm lying there in this pine straw thinking, oh, God, I wish I'd have never done this. Oh, I wish I'd have never got involved in this. Oh, I wish I'd have never done this. Oh, if I could go back and do it again, I'd never do it again. And I thought, don't do me, I'm lying there. Where's goat at? And I heard something a thrashing and a tearing through the swamp and the bushes. And it was like a rhinoceros or something coming. So I turned to look, and here come goat. This is back in the hippie days. Y'all remember them days? He had hair down to his waist, and it was out behind him. He had done tore his shirt all the way off of him and gouged all his pants, and he was barefooted and done run out of his shoes. So he was a sight to behold as he was coming out of these bushes. So he seen me laying there in the pine straw, and he stopped laying there beside me. And while he's lying there, we hadn't said a word, but I know he's thinking the same thing. I, well, I wish I'd have never done this. Oh, I wish. I think I got a brilliant revelation as we was laying there. I want you to judge and see if I did or not. I need some help in this. I said, goat, where is the money at? He said, I thought you had it. I said, where's the guns at? He said, I thought you had them. Here we are, got in more trouble in 10 minutes than we're going to get it out of in a, out in a lifetime. That goat got killed later. He died. Goat died. He's dead. In fact, I'm the only surviving boy 
in my community. I'm the only one. I'm 59. Not one that lived to be, the oldest one besides me would live to be 32 years old when he died. All of them's dead. Sin will kill you. And every one of them died from some dramatic event. Every one of them. Because we wouldn't listen. Hard-headed, rebellious. So we're laying there in the pine straw. We realized, well, it ain't going to be long before they get the dogs after us and all this stuff, the bloodhounds, and they did. And these bloodhounds chased us to the woods. It was pitch dark. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face. I mean, that's how dark it was. And at start with, and then later on, you could get a little light from the moon because it was coming up, you know. But uh, we was going through these woods, and you could just run, and the dogs seemed like they was almost about to catch us. And then suddenly... The dogs turned and went in another direction. That tells the whole story in my book, and I got a CD series over here called Escape from Hell. It tells the whole story about all this. But the dogs turned and went in the opposite direction. Later, we figured out that our, we had circled around in the woods so much, lost ourselves, that the dogs got confused about which way we went. And so the police that was surrounding us, because they had us surrounded with cars and guns and Wheelie birds, that's the type of a helicopter way back yonder, you know. They call them wheelie birds back then. Little bubble helicopters, you know. That is surrounded. But when the dogs turned and went in another direction, they thought we went that way. And so we took off across this highway and made it through the woods, stayed in the woods all that night. And then the next day, we called somebody to come pick us up. And they was able to get away. And so we got away, we thought, with a crime. In fact, we was out in Dallas, Texas. A lot of things happened after that. That, was, that happened over in Alabama, you know. But we was running from these charges, and I was headed back down through Alabama with drugs up to no good again, and I got stopped for weaving across the line because I was drunk again. And they put me in jail. I lied about who I was, but they found out through fingerprints, put me in jail. And then later on, it took a while, but later on, I was sentenced to the uh, time in prison. And then while I was in prison, I escaped three times, and I'm not going into all of them right now because it would take too long. I want to get up to the point that I come to know Jesus Christ. But on these three escapes, somebody said, what happened? How in the world did you escape from prison three times? You've got to be able to leap tall buildings with a single bound. You've got to outrun speeding bullets. You almost got to stop a locomotive with one hand. But I escaped three times in 72 hours, three days. Three times in 72 hours. I escaped one time, got back, escaped again. They got me back. The third time, I got away. So what is the moral of the story? Keep doing it till you get it right. <laughs> Not escaping, serving the Lord. But keep doing it. Don't give up. And it was in different prisons, of course, that they would take me to, and I would find ways to get out. One time I jumped out of a two-story uh, building, uh, up on a, uh, that had just a fire escape door and I had to jump 10 to 12 feet out over this electrified razor wire fence and I landed two stories below broke the bones in my right foot but I found out later they told me I run 14 miles with a broke foot and made it till I got away and so I'm out on my third escape from prison and I'm sitting there and I'd been on escape this last escape for uh, uh, one, almost one year it was 11 months and some days. And I was in Baytown, Texas. Anybody know where Baytown is? You over by Houston, you know it's not far from there. Baytown, Texas. In Baytown, Texas, anybody where Mickey Gillies Club is? Oh, my God. Pray for her, Lord. Help her, Jesus. Pray for her, Lord. We live not far from Mickey Gillies Club. And uh, we was always in and out of there, you know. But I was sitting in this apartment on escape, selling drugs, that's how I was doing it. And I was sitting in this apartment one night. This is getting to where I met Jesus. Had a praying mama, praying Aunt Rosie. Remember, she took me to Gentian Baptist. I had a brother that was a preacher. My daddy uh, that was praying for me and a preacher. And, of course, I hadn't seen them. I couldn't go around them because they'd get a, a arrested, you know, for aiding and abetting the criminal. So I'm sitting in an in apartment in Baytown, Texas, not far from Mickey Gillies Club. And I had a fifth of whiskey in one hand and drugs in the other hand. And I was sitting in one of those uh, fold-out seats like you'd take outside with the webbing in them. I don't even know if they make that kind anymore. 
because there were so many people in this little apartment. They were sitting in the floor and everywhere. I just got one of the lounge chairs. They'd call it out from the back porch and just fold it out. And, and I sat down in it. And as I'm sitting there, and everybody's sitting around shooting dope, you know, syringes and snorting this and smoking that and drinking that, you know, getting high, call it, having a party, you know. I'm sitting there in that chair, and all of a sudden, this strange feeling, strange to me, came on me. And then I had this unusual urge that I was going to be a preacher. You're going to be a preacher. And I felt like I should tell those guys and girls that I was in this apartment with that I'm going to be a preacher. So before I could stop myself, with a fifth of whiskey in one hand, drugs in the other hand, I just spoke to all the drug addicts, I'm going to be a preacher. You can imagine. They laughed louder. Oh, God. They had visions. And blotter acid, too, along with all this, and took trips. Hey, we used to take trips and never leave the house. Y'all spend all that money going on these trips. We used to take trips and never leave the house. Woo, we was messed up. One time we thought we was on the moon. We did. Everybody thought we was, we thought we was literally on the moon. The moon had come up bright, and it seemed like it was just hanging right there in the window. We thought somehow we had traveled to the moon. <laughs> Never left Earth. <laughs> but we took some trips. We was messed up. So when that happened to me, though, I knew, all I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is I knew it was supernatural. It was not natural. And I knew, I didn't understand it. So I just threw the whiskey down, my drugs down, said, y'all, get out of my apartment. I'm leaving for a while. You'd be gone when I get back. So I got out, and I just drove, you know, where Interstate 10 is. I went up to Interstate 10, and they was working on it. I don't know if they're still working on it. They're working on something all the time. But they used to work on that back in there, especially. And I was driving back and forth, and this is 1982. I'd drive uh, east a while on Interstate 10, and I'd take one of the exits, and I'd come back. And I'd drive back that way 15, 20 miles or more. Like a tiger would pace in a circus cage. That's kind of the way I was doing. Because I was trying to figure out what happened. And I wanted to call back and talk to Aunt Rosie at home or Mama or Daddy or Granny or somebody. And ask them, do y'all know what's going on with me? Why? You know, I knew this was not a trip. I knew it wasn't a drug. I knew it wasn't an alcohol thing. This was something beyond me. But I knew if I called, then I might get in trouble. And I might get them in trouble. So I finally, in the wee hours of the morning, just got tired, went home, and what we call crashed in those days, went to bed. I woke up very late the next day, you know, 12 or 1 o'clock. I got up, and that was still heavy on me. And I thought, oh, boy, something is, something is right, uh, wrong with me. I don't know what it is. But by that night, I figured, well, I, oh, just me. I was just having that experience, and, you know, it's over with. And, you know, I just, I just thought it happened, you know. That's all it was. It didn't really happen. And so, next thing you know, I'm right back in the same thing that I was doing before. Drugs and alcohol and everything. And so, I was trying to get out of the country. Somebody asked me one time, I was in the northeastern United States, and a pastor asked me, he said, Brother Randy, why in the world did you want to get out of the country? I said, sir, I said, when you get on escape from prison, the ABI, the CBI, the GBI, and the FBI, I said, all the eyes get after you. And I said, I was trying to go to the uttermost part of the earth to get away from them. So I'd heard about a guy down in Galveston, Texas, that had this illegal operation. It looked like a shrimp boat operation. And he had a shrimp boat, but he could get you illegal papers and passports and visas. And for, you know, six to $8,000, according to what you wanted to do, he could slip you over to Mexico and you could live happily ever after. Well, I thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. Because I'm tired of running. I mean, everywhere I go, the police are just fixing to come in or found out I was there or something, you know. So that was my deal. And so there was two girls in high that plotted this thing that was going to rob somebody and because I needed uh, some more money to pay the man for the papers. He was getting everything ready. And we was going to meet him that day. But we was going to go rob these people in this place, not people, but a place. And then I was going to give them money, give them the vehicle, and then I'm, they're going to drop me off at the shrimp boat deal, and then he's going to take me over to Mexico, and I'm going to live happily ever after. So we start 
take, go down to Galveston, and Galveston, you know, is an island, so the only way on and off is by bridge or ferry. I don't know if they still run into ferry. They are still running the ferry. Anyway, so we went across on the bridge. And when we got down there, I was supposed to turn left on Seawall Boulevard. Anybody know where Seawall Boulevard? It's the main road. You know, I see them back there and up here that runs across up and down the Gulf, Seawall Boulevard. Well, back then, it didn't have all the high-rise hotels it's got now. I mean, but it's got them. You know, it had few back then, but not near what they got now. But, but uh, I was supposed to turn left. But as I was driving down that road towards Seawall Boulevard, that same feeling, ladies and gentlemen, that I had that same sensation in that apartment approximately two weeks earlier when I said I'm going to be a preacher, it came on me in that van. I'm facing life without parole. I, I am uh, what they call an habitual offender. No hope of ever getting out of prison again. But this feeling came on me, and I had this, I don't know, bad feeling that if I turned left, that something bad was going to happen to me, and I should not turn left. So when I got to Seawall Boulevard, instead of turning left, I turned right. Well, the girls hollered and said, you're supposed to be turning left. You know we're going down here and we're going to do this, and Rob, and then going and you're going to do this. But I turned right, and what I did, turned right, I went maybe half a mile. And then suddenly, the Spirit of God invaded that van. And they sung that song over me. Another one bit the dust. I come to the end of myself, lying over that old Dodge steering wheel van that I was driving. Suddenly, the Lord Jesus revealed himself to me, and I saw myself as a sinner. And I saw that I was headed to hell fast, and I heard these words come real to me. He said, if you don't turn your life over to me today, you're never going to have another chance he said, the devil has laid the trap for you. He said, you're about to walk into it, and you're going to wind up dead and in hell. So as I was sitting there, I remembered Aunt Rosie and going to Gentian Baptist. I remembered Mama and Daddy. I remember saying, I just started to burst out crying. I was sobbing uncontrollably. These girls had never seen me like that. They just knew me as a hardened, cold, cruel hoodlum. That's all they'd known. And so... I began right then to repent. And I said, if you're really real like Aunt Rosie said you are, if you're really real like Granny and Mama and Daddy said you are, I said, I'll give you my life. I said, but my life is messed up. And I heard these words. If you'll turn your life over to me, I'll get out of the mess that you've got it into, and you'll do what I called you to do. Remember the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, he heard the Lord speaking to him. Heard the Lord talking to him. I had an experience like that, ladies and gentlemen, where he talked to me and told me what I would do and some things that would happen in our future, and some of them already happened and some will happen as we're faithful to walk with him. But I remember the van door slammed on the side, and I looked up startled, and those two girls had jumped out, and they started hollering, He's lost his mind! He's lost his mind. And they started kind of jogging down the road behind me. And I've never heard or seen them since that day. They're gone. And so I was sitting there in that van. I said, God, what do you want me to do? Which way do I go now? Because I said, I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of all my sins. All of a sudden, the peace of God came on me. And I knew that the demons that I had been yielding to left me and that I would never be the same again. And then, that same voice that told me some things said this to me. It said, I want you to turn yourself into the police authorities here in Galveston, Texas, today, right now. He said, I want you to waive all your rights of extradition. In other words, don't fight a court battle. He said, go back to the state of Alabama. When you get there, he said, I want you to plead guilty to all five felony charges you're, you have when you get there. My immediate response to his statement was, do what? I thought he had the wrong guy. I thought I got killed three times escaping, and he's telling me to go back. No convict in their right mind wants to go back to prison facing life without the possibility of parole. But he said, if you don't do what I tell you to do, he said, the devil's laid a trap for you. 
And I said, I'll do it. And I made the decision in that van. I said, if I have to go to prison for the rest of my natural life because of the crimes I committed, I said, I would rather do that and make heaven my home than to bust hell wide open. So there was a police officer close by. So I went and told this police officer that I'm on escape from prison. I never dreamed I would do anything like this in my life. In fact, my talk had been this. I'll make the big guns shoot before they get me back. The big guns shoot for convict talk was they'll kill me. I ain't going back. But I, my life was so gloriously changed when I met Jesus that my mind changed, my thinking changed, and I was going to let God work in my life. And so that day, when I turned myself in that police officer, he thought I was the biggest nut that ever hit Galveston, Texas. He said, stand back, stand back, you know, because he didn't believe me. You know, I said, sir, I said, I, I said, I just got born again. I got saved. And I said, I'm on my third escape from prison. I got five felony charges. And I said, will you please arrest me? Stand back, stand back. So he got his car radio. Back, this is before they have all these computers in the cars, you know. So he got on the radio, and he got my social security number and everything, and my name, just had to spell it out. And then he called it in, and they put it in the computer back there, you know. And then it wasn't long before he jumped out of that car with his pistol drawn and said, spread eagle on the hood. Now, if you don't know how to do that, I think there's some fellows in here that knows how to give lessons about that. <laughs> and maybe some more. Maybe I give some lessons about how to do that at the church. You know what I mean? Vulnerable position. So I spread eagle on the hood. I put my hands out, stretched my feet out. He came up behind me, put your hand behind your back, put your other hand, and he handcuffed me. Then he put a chain around my waist and, and put it to my feet and to my hands too. So I'm in shackles, chains, and handcuffs. And they took me down to the Galveston County Jail. They put me there, and they talked to me, and I told them I'm guilty of everything. And I'm guilty of all crimes. I told them everything I'd ever done wrong, things that I had, they had never even charged me for. I told them all that too. I said, I just, well, I'm coming clean. You don't need to lie. I'm clean now. I mean, I'm for real. And if I had to go to prison the rest of my life, fine. But I'm going with God. So they put me in a, a cell there and had to hold me about a month and a half. And then the state authorities came and picked me up in this prisoner transport plane. It was a twin engine, about a six or eight seater. Don't know what it was, but because back then, you know, I didn't know planes or nothing. They said the reason they put me in an airplane because they kept me on the ground, I might run again. So <laughs> I probably wouldn't get out of an airplane, you know. And they flew me back to Montgomery, Alabama, Danley Field, and they landed me there, taking me to Holman Prison, which was where death row, the electric chair, and all the lifeboat parolers were housed. It was death by electrocution in those days. Now they give lethal injections, I think. But it was death by electrocution. Now that was going to put me in a life without parole prison because I would never get out of prison again. And they knew that. That's what they were saying. But let me tell you something in closing. Because I'll just have to start tomorrow and tell the rest. There's so much, it's six hours long. We won't try to do it all tonight. But... When I first time ever flew into Montgomery, Alabama, uh, city airport, it's called Danley Field, D-A-N-N-E-L-L-Y, Field. The very first time they ever flew in there into my life, I was on a prisoner transport plane going to prison for the rest of my natural life, and rightfully so, because I had broken the laws of the land. But the very next time that I flew into Montgomery Airport, which is many years later, I was in Randall Greer Ministries airplane, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same prisons that they said I'd never get out of. And I'm standing here tonight. During this series of meetings, I'll tell you how to believe God for a miracle. But I received a miracle of salvation. That's the first miracle. Getting right with God. There's a lot of miracles I've received since then. And the Lord has taught me. In fact, they told me that I would never receive a full pardon. But I got one with the right to own and possess a firearm, which is shotguns, rifles, and pistols for city folks. And I was in prison for armed robbery. It is unheard of. But when you know the King of kings and Lord of lords, 
He can work situations and work miracles if you'll trust him and believe him that nobody else can do. Amen? The Lord set me free. And, he, and of course, uh, I'm, I'm going back to prison now, so you'll have to stay in prison with me tonight and all day tomorrow. Tomorrow night, maybe we might get you out tomorrow night. I don't know for sure. Anyway, you just, just suffer with me. But we're in Holman Prison right now. They took me from the airport, I mean, from there on a prisoner transport van, and they took me down to Holman, which is in Atmore, Alabama, about 60 miles north of Mobile, Alabama, and they drove me through the Sally Port. That's a special gate called a Sally Port there to go into the prison. I don't know why they call it Sally Port, because I never saw Sally. I've looked and looked, and Sally has never been there. But they take you in and they shut these gates around you before they let you off. They call them Sally Ports so you can't escape. Got officers up there with towers in the towers with guns and rifles so they can shoot you if you decide to run. So I'm so glad you came tonight. Let's pray. Father. I know you were blessed by this message. If you would like to receive more information about Randall Greer Ministries or if you'd like to receive our free newsletter, just let us know. We'd be happy to send it to you. Just write us at Randall Greer Ministries, P.O. Box 2227, Owasso, Oklahoma 74055. Or you can contact us at our website, www.rgm.me. And remember, God is always with us.